Okay, I am here with uh, Peter Amster. I'm going to explain to Peter that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. And I only ask one question, and that is, where did it start? What gave you the idea that theater or stories or directing was of interest, was compelling, whatever? Well, I have to confess that it didn't start as a director, of course. I started like many directors did, as an actor. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that it was in second grade. We were having an international luncheon, and each little class had to put on uh, a little skit of some sort. And, of course, being a nice Jewish boy from Long Island, we got Saudi Arabia. We put on a little play called Jazim at the Oasis, and because I was a very voluble young man, uh, they cast me as Jazim. It was a little play with a social crisis in it about whether to tell his dad the truth about coconuts or something. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but it all ended happily when he did the right thing. Uh, and uh, I guess that's the first time I was bit by that. Oh, I, actually, I have to take it back. Um, back when I was four years old, my mom took, took me to see Mary Martin and Peter Pan uh. on Broadway. And I thought, well, that's magic indeed. Yes. And being, of course, named Peter as well, I figured that, well, if she can fly, so can I. And, <laughs> uh, I had to be restrained from jumping out of second floor windows. Is that the truth? It's absolutely the truth. I absolutely believe it. <laughs> and the other thing that's so interesting about this is that you remember. Oh, you remember gosh. this at four. You remember this at seven. Absolutely. You know, lots of people, if you ask them anything about their four-year-old self or seven-year-old self, they wouldn't have it. But this is, this is crystal in your mind, well, right? Yes, and uh, it's a kind of muscle memory because most of my recollections take the form of a kind of visceral kinesthetic sense rather than a, a, a picture in your head. I tend to be very, very physical. I think probably that had to do with the fact that my mom, I think she had her gallbladder out when she was eight months pregnant with me and she had been on so much morphine and Demerol and everything else for the pain. Uh, I was a drug baby and I was very hyperactive and I had very super hearing and super, you know, I was very, well, uh, hypersensitive to yes, things yes. as well and very, and very hyper hyperactive. Uh, but the most, the most, the thing that led me through like a bullet through life at, at, at that age was physicality, was kinetic and kinesthetic experience rather than visual or auditory. I love or this. Taste. I love this expression, which led me through life like a bullet. I mean, it's and it's so visceral. It really is. <laughs> it, right. It, it's true. And of course, the really, um, even though I was interested in performing as an as an actor, my my first thing was to study dance. I had been in school plays and all that, and I loved to sing, and I had taken piano lessons and all oh, that. Oh, so you and have like, all of that stuff is going on oh, in yeah. your childhood. Absolutely. Right. I, was, I was very fortunate. It was back, back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay to get on the Long Island Railroad and take yourself at 11 and 12 years old into the city. And I went, I went to the Met. I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I went to Broadway shows. I went to off-Broadway shows. Uh, Do you remember some of the early plays you saw? I don't have larger memories of experience until the late 50s, early 60s. Fiddly so when are you in high school? I'm, I'm not in high school until 64. Okay, but so you start having these memories. Right, oh, absolutely. Right, 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 right. And really, starting in the late 50s, early 60s, I was going to the uh, New York City Ballet and American Ballet Theater. And just, I mean, fell in love with Marsha Haydn and uh, Eddie Valella and all these, these great dancers, I mean, uh, what, they seemed to defy gravity, they were so gorgeous to look at, and I mean, I was, I was so, I was such a kinetic, bouncy kid back then that I, I, I thought, 
they had a, I had to strap myself into my seat while watching them because my body was bouncing around to what I was watching on stage. The other thing that, in, that occurs to me about this is that, and it's interesting because I think it's so smart and clearly it was a reflex, that dance allows you to move around like this, but it gives you a structure. It contains the energy. It allows you the expression of the energy, but it doesn't get you into trouble. No. Do you know what I mean? It's it, exactly, exactly. It, it, gives you, it, gives, it gives that virtual sense of force a structure. Yes, yes. If you didn't have that, that could have been very problematic for you. Well, and I could have been also an athlete. When I got into high school, I was also on the track team. And I was also very fortunate to move to the Five Towns, which had a very progressive um, arts program. So it was a class called the Humanities. They took 15 kids and created uh, this class, which started with the Greeks and dealt with all of the arts, going all the way forward to contemporary studying art criticism, philosophy, all of the visual and physical arts. And we would go on field trips to, to the various museums and with, with a really good docents. Uh, and, and also to, we, went to the, we went to the uh, opening performance of Harold Pinter's The Homecoming. Oh my God. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, we, had, we had people coming in to chat with the, the little class, like Edward Valella, um, Jasper Johns, uh, Leonard Bernstein. They oh came to our class. Oh my God. It was it was uh, an extraordinary. It was a, it was as great an education as anything can be imagined. So for to to George W. Hewlett High School, I say thank you for that. Well, the other thing again that occurs to me is that this was not not only sanctioned, right? Um, you you got the idea that this was a you were allowed to think that this was a valuable thing to do with your life and a viable one and a viable one exactly and there were other kids who also had this point of view you were mm-hmm. not standing out being the only one there was yeah you know, and the, the level of discussion uh, about the, was was really quite high minded and very satisfying. However, I was also having, having pressure, like so many uh, <laughs> Jewish boys my age, uh, right. to go into, you know, to become a doctor. Of course. And of course, I was very good at science and math, uh, much more so than English and, 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 and that. And so when I went to Northwestern, uh, when I graduated, I went to, uh, uh, in the six-year medical program. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had one of those wonderful Jewish mothers that grabbed by the ear and stared intently into your eyes and says, if anybody's going to cure cancer, darling, it's you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so in the middle of, uh, I think, sophomore year, I switched from, uh, to a theater major. Yeah, I'll have to <laughs> hand that baton to somebody else to run with anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I kept going back and forth to New York seeing shows and all that. And I decided, you know, you come to, a, you come to the crossroads. You have to decide what is it that you want to do with your life. I, I love the idea of research. Uh, that's probably what I would have done if I, if I had stayed in medicine uh, because I was very interested in, in diagnostics and research and that kind of stuff. And anyway, backing up just a little bit, well, I, um, I went to a... There was a, a selected high school student program up at Potsdam, um, SUNY Potsdam, New York, uh, that took high school kids from all over the state and 
we took college courses, and I somehow applied and got into that, and met a girl that I, that I liked, and she was studying with Iglevsky out in Massapequa Park, and I said, all right, I can do that. And so I studied, started studying dance um, back, I think I was a sophomore, sophomore in high school. And that was, I, I felt uh, liberated in a kind of way, uh, that even in the stricture of, of, of classical dance, of ballet, that I was finding a kind of, kind of expressiveness. Well, it turned out that my body really wasn't able to do what, what I wanted it to. Uh, I've since had hip replacements, and the doctor says, what did you do back then? I, said, I was a dancer. He said, no, you weren't. You couldn't be, because your hips have been malformed since birth. And so I realized that what I was doing was mind over matter, trying to get my legs to do what they were supposed to do for ballet. Well, anyway, when I went to Northwestern and was even doing all my classes for medicine, I was also taking uh, jazz and modern dance. Uh, so I, I, I kept going as a dancer, but I also switched into theater, and I started studying acting and all that. I was a terrible actor. Um, why? Uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't understand the connection between the inner life of yourself and the inner life of a character. I didn't know how to be in the moment. When an actor is in the moment, they expand in there and they become uh, larger in life. Their presence grows. Their aura grows. When they're in the group, you know, profoundly in the moment, on stage, there are two things that pull an actor out of the moment. That pull you into the future if you don't know your lines and you're worrying about what comes You're in next. your head. Yes, or you're worrying about what the next beat is going to be or the next action is going to be. You get pulled into the past when you are critical of yourself in the moment and say, that sucked. Oh, that was good. That was bad. Nah, I could have done better. The critic that's on your shoulder saying you're good or bad is pulling you back into the past. You have to let go of the critic. You have to learn your lines and know what you're doing and be confident in what comes next and just be there. Uh, I didn't know how to do that. I was too, I, I, I was too much of a racer. Yes. Uh, too impatient uh, to be a good actor at the time. Now, did you... Did somebody tell you this then and you simply couldn't do it or you never understood it until No, later? I kept doing it. I mean, I was good enough to get by at it. And since I was also a singer and a dancer... Oh, right. You had I, all these... I had all these other talents. And they right. say, well, he's triple threat, so he's not a great, great actor, actor. But okay, But he can, do this, he can do these other things. So there are certain roles that he can play that, where that wouldn't make you know, too much difference. So I, and, and also I got, I got hooked on Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> In which you don't have to act very much. Well, uh, you do... You, no, you don't. <laughs> you have to say, you have to hold your part. Right. You have to learn a dialect. You have to sound convincingly right. British. And I, and I had a good ear for, for RP, which is um, proper British pronunciation. And so I, I, and I was one of the founding members of the Gilbert and Sullivan Guild at Northwestern because it was just forming, and that's where I started. And I was also starting to choreograph. Uh, and I choreographed a few shows and was in a few shows at Northwestern. And then my senior year, uh, the director of the, pro of, of the Gilbert and Sullivan Guild said, do you want to direct? And I said, I don't know. I'm sure, why not? <laughs> so he said, well, I want you to try the Mikado. So you, you started out directing the Mikado? I started, the first thing, <laughs> 1970, I directed the Mikado, and of course I brought up a, a choreographer sensibility to me. It was all yes, about... Yes, it was all about movement. About movement, traffic patterns, and all yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and it was, but I also had, I've also had, always had a very good sense of humor. Most of that was developed as a kind of uh, uh, 
weapon against a very challenging family life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. um, Self-defense. Self-defense, exactly. Armor. Um, but also, I, I, I've been gifted in some kind of way of finding this life amusing. Amusing. <laughs> very clever. Very, very clever. I wish I, I can't take complete credit for it, though I must I'd say I have cultivated that because I find it also a, a, a more pleasant way of moving through life. Yeah. It, it's interesting because it seems to me that you have been presented with a number of challenges mm. and rather reflexively, not consciously or intellectually, you have found coping mechanisms that help you deal with the challenges in the most positive way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I do. I do. I, I, yeah. Um, well, well it, was, it was either that or succumb. I was just too... Stubborn. Stubborn, <laughs> ebullient. Ah, uh, uh, yes, that's very different. That's very different. You were just too full of life. I, I, I guess so. I mean, I, no, I, I, think I think so. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. It's just interesting, I mean, because it's not, so far, you haven't said, and you probably don't know, how come you made those choices. Mm. Because a lot of people would have descended into despair, gotten into a lot of trouble, you know, been obstructionist, difficult. I mean, there are a lot of ways that the obstacles that you had could have gone negatively, but they didn't. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was very fortunate to do is I, I... I was going through a number of changes in my life, uh, coming out and all that, at the same time dealing, as I said, with a difficult family life. Uh, my mother had remarried. Uh, my stepfather and I did not get along, and home was, was fairly much hell. When, uh, how old were you then? Um, well, I, that happened when I was eight, but by the time I was, I finally said, um, I got, I'm, I'm, my head's messed up. And mom said, you, let's, let's send you to a, um, a psychologist. And I, oh, I went to a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I told him, and he said, oh, it couldn't possibly be as bad as all that. Let's work this through, work this through. And I said, no, this is the it's way it is. <laughs> and I said, tell you what, mister, you, you know, why don't you meet these people and tell me what you think? <laughs> and he, I said, next session, it could be with them instead of me. And that's what they did. They both went into the next session with, with Dr. Um, Crawler. No, Gold Hill. Well, when I went, when some wonderful man. And when I went back the next time, he said, you're right, they're Meshuggie. They're crazy. <laughs> Get out of town as soon as you graduate. Find the farthest college you can go to. Did he really? Good he, for him. He, he did. And I must say, getting away from them and putting, and putting that into perspective, yes, of course. Yes, right, right. Uh, being able to put that into perspective by getting some distance from it, really, that was the best therapy there was. And also not being under the, you know, under the thumb and inside the house where so much toxic, toxicity existed right. was, was a, a marvelous thing. Yes, oh my God. Um, well, good for him. That's, yeah, that's... that was great. But okay, I, so, that, so now you're off to Northwestern and you've, you've continued to dance. You've gone into um, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. You've, mm-hmm. you've directed the Mikado. Yes. My God, it was a very um, busy and productive period oh, of time for you. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. Um, I was very, very happy in undergraduate life, both, both in the uh, medical part before I gave that right, up. Right, right. Um, but in, in theater and ex- extracurricular stuff and uh, doing choreographing show, other shows as well, and then finally doing my own yeah. uh, direct You found show. yourself, really. Yeah, in a way I did. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and also, my senior year, I met my life partner, uh, Frank Galati, and... Uh, oh my God, you've been together that long? 41 years. My goodness. Uh, and so, I, I, I mean, my original plan probably was to move to New York like every other young triple threat slash director, whatever. <laughs> right. But um, decided to stay in Chicago because we moved in together the, a few days before my, I graduated college at 20. My goodness. Uh, wow, lucky you. Well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I didn't mean to suggest everything is rosy and easy, but... Oh, no, 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 no. As Stephen Sondheim once said, the best relationships are the most complicated. Yes. And it is a complicated one, but it is an extremely satisfying one. You know, everybody always scratches their head and look at it and say, how can two directors <laughs> carve out a life together without there being friction and static and yeah. all that? But yeah. we've, we've managed to come to a place where we are so proud of each other uh, and, and recognize each other's gifts. Uh, and we, we work totally differently. You'd only directed the Mercado, essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how did you come to identify yourself as a director? Well, um, over the next seven years after 1970, I was basically a gypsy. I did a lot of theater in Chicago. I did national tour of 1776. I did a lot of theater as a performer. And, and also, at the meantime, there was a new company, Chicago Opera Theater, that was just getting started, and I was choreographing and directing productions, and so was Frank at the same time, starting to get into opera as well as operetta, uh, and, and, and doing musicals mostly, well, uh, directing. Uh, I, I found that I really loved it. And since I could play piano, and I could sing well enough and be able to understand what a, what a, what a singer has to negotiate in order to create a role, and understood enough about acting to translate action from uh, being a, a text-generated idea to being a musically-generated idea, uh, I found that I was expanding into the role of an opera and musical theater director. At the same time, I was alternating that with acting and dancing and what have you. And then on the stage of the uh, Candlelight Dinner Theater, uh, during the hornpipe of Carousel, I busted my knee. Oi. Yeah. And that really was the end of the dancing part. Um, I went through all the surgery and all that, and, but, but I realized that that, was, that door was being closed with a thud. And in some way it was a relief, because as, as um, joyous I was as a dancer, I, my technique sucked. <laughs> and part of it has to do with the fact that I can't hold still long enough to concentrate. Yes, on right, 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 but right. part of it also had to do with the fact that my body still couldn't do what I really wanted it to. Right, that's got to be uh, so depressing. Yeah. Uh, so as, as that was happening, and I was also, I had gone back for a master's, I, d I decided after gradua uh, graduating with a BS in, in, in speech, which was a theater degree, to go back for my master's. Since Frank was also, was a professor, and getting, he got, I got my bachelor's when he got his PhD from Northwestern ah. in what was then the oral interpretation department, has now become performance studies. Went back for my master's in performance studies, started really studying language, uh, literature, uh, uh, basically performance studies is the, was at that time defined as the performance, the study of literature through performance. What can we learn? It, it's like an English department um, filled with actors. <laughs> wow. It's really an interesting uh, field of study and opened up to me uh, the world of, of fiction, of nonfiction, of poetry, and I started coming up with ideas of staging 
fiction and poetry as well. Um, there was a great professor there named uh, uh, Robert Green who literally coined the term chamber theater and invented the technique of, of, of uh, transforming uh, literary texts in, in fiction and nonfiction to the stage, retaining na a narrator and finding a way in which a narr narrator's efficacy on the stage uh, can be manipulated in a kind of way and created in a, in a satisfying way for telling a story. So I had I adapted and directed Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Mann, and stuff like that, and that was very exciting for me. Uh, which, which kind of brought me in, you know, in two directions. I already had a background in movement. I had a background in music. I'd studied piano for 15 years. Uh, and now I was, that last thing in terms of becoming a theater director rather than an opera director was, pull, was coming into play. Yeah, text. Yes, text. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, you had all the pieces. Yeah, so I, so I started probably in the late, in the early 80s starting to direct plays. Uh, I was very fortunate also to have a dear friend who was, well, Frank's friend first and then mine, uh, Libby Apple, who was, uh, started direct, was a director at the Goodman, worked on her master's in Northwestern, and then, and she was teaching at the Goodman, then became the artistic director of uh, Indiana Repertory Theater, and then from there moved on to the uh, 10 years as artistic director uh, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the, 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 the largest theater company in the United States, except for Lincoln, except for Lincoln Center. And she saw in me uh, what other people, everybody saw in me either Frank's little friend or the dancer who thinks he can direct. Uh, I, there were a number of challenges in terms of my image oh, that in, in Chicago, Libby saw through that. She said, no, 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 I want you to direct. Uh, and she brought me to all of her theaters, and I followed her around the country, expanding the repertoire of things I directed from, from little, from children, uh, theater for young audiences into uh, more interesting and complicated uh, things to uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois, State of the Union. Uh, uh, anyway, and, and then finally, when I got to, to uh, Oregon, to um, Noel Coward, mm -hmm. Shakespeare, etc. I was, I am forever in her debt for, for her uh, belief in me. Uh, yeah, I hear a lot in these interviews the serendipity of someone mm -hmm. seeing, believing, being there at the right time, yeah. you know. That yeah, I, I never, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to go back to college just for a second to tell a little story. I was doing a scene in a, an acting class. Uh, and I had, it was a scene from The Great White Hope, and I was playing the Mexican uh, fight trainer or something like that. I couldn't remember. And I was not doing well. And there was this wonderful actress who was, happened to be in the class as well. Her name was Evelyn Barron. Uh, I think she's the artistic director of a theater on the East Coast now. Who, you know, nobody was actually teaching acting. I mean, it's a very hard thing to teach. Yes. I mean, you can teach technique and all that, and there's Meisner approach, and there's Stanislavski approach, but nobody was doing that in the, in the mid-60s at Northwestern. And she sat me down and told me a little bit about what it is to be an actor and what you need to do and to forget about doing that and forget about doing that. And basically what she was saying is, get your get your uh, choreographer hat off of your head. Get your directors, get your uh, audience members hat off of your head. Be there in the moment. All you got to do is say the lines and don't bump into the furniture. Simplify. Yeah. Focus. And I went on stage and everybody went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, there are, there are these angels that show up in your life at, at the right moment to, to give you a lesson uh, that, prof- that profoundly, you know, that you veer, you shift or, or swerve from one focus to the other, and, and then all of a sudden everything clicks into focus and you can move yeah, forward. Yeah, and it's also, I think, a little bit when the, t- when the student is ready, you know, you were able to hear that then and use it, Yeah. right? Right. Okay, so then later we have Libby Apple doing the same thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And uh, just giving me the opportunity and the confidence to expand and develop my craft as a director. Uh, one of the things I found out, I mean, after watching Okada and a few of the earlier things that I directed, is that I started to get disappointed in what I was looking at, and I realized that it's because everybody looks like me. Something's wrong here. <laughs> And I realized that, the, you know, that starting as a choreographer, that, that that kind of micromanaging movement and all that was not the right way to go. <laughs> it all looked pretty. The yeah. stage pictures were pretty, but there was something missing at the heart. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I had to develop a grammar of discourse with actors that gave them the agency, gave them the sense that this, they're making this up as, it, as, it, as it's happening. They, mm-hmm. That may, allows them to, that, that validates their choices rather than simply imposes mine. Um, and uh, so that has been my, that has been my process. It's an ongoing one. That's your journey. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, there are directors who believe that it's all about the physicality mm-hmm. and if they get the actors to move in the right way, that it'll be okay. Um, but the right way is, you know, if, if the right way is imposed simply from the outside, outside. it's not, it's not going to look good. I agree. Yeah. Um, I agree. Be, I think there empty. are, yeah. I agree. Right. Yeah. Or, but however, I also think on the other thing, I, I see some shows where uh, the philosophy of directing is never to give them blocking, never, you know, it all has to come from the direct, from the actors. Right. And it becomes a kind of shapeless mass. Yes. It doesn't have an, you know, the architecture isn't, isn't. There's no structure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 There's yeah. something about the architecture of a, prof- a production of a performance that's every bit as satisfying as important as the inner life and the beating heart that drives through it and so getting that balance right is 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 part of what i i feel i have to do uh and provide for the uh for the production as well as for the for the actors when libby apple uh retired as artistic director at oregon shakespeare festival i had been working every year except for seven years uh during her tenure there um, when, when the new artistic director came in with a very different uh, vision for the theater and his own people from the West Coast, I realized, well, that's, that's the end of this journey, and that's fine. I, had, I did, had seven wonderful years working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, but, uh, and, and at that same time, Michael had just become artistic director uh, here at the Oslo Rep. And he asked me to direct, and I said, sure. That's one of the reasons I moved from Miami to Sarasota was that here is a place where I, I think I might be able to actually have a job in the same place where I live. Not only just to, to um, work in the theater, but to go to theater. I was going to say, you're surrounded by the theater here. By the theater, by the ballet, by, the, by dance, by opera, by the That's symphony. Right. I mean, this, I mean, I hope, I hope everybody out there realizes that this doesn't happen anywhere else. No. This is a unique uh, arts environment in the United States. I think Michael said there are more people working in the arts per capita 
in Sarasota than any other place in the United States except New York. I didn't know that. Yes. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I just love it. And this is a community yeah. in, a way, in a way that New York is a community and L.A. is not a community. Exactly. You know. There's a center. There's a center. Here. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's a, uh, a center of gravity, an ethos of the, ta- of the place mm-hmm. that comes together. I, see, I go, go to a restaurant and see board members and other actors right. and dancers that I've admired and artistic directors and that's all right. that. And, uh, we, and everybody's talking to each other. Yeah. There's cross-pollination between the arts and, and within the arts, you know, each of the arts that I find uh, very exciting. To be gifted with the Oslo, which brings the best of the best, the cream of the crop together, um, it's it's one of the more delicious sand, uh, sandboxes to play. In, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 quality, the level of production, uh, the scenery, this one of the best costume uh, shops in the country, bar none. And we're going to talk about Murder on the Orient <laughs> Express. Okay. So I'm going to say that I was surprised I didn't know it was a play. Well, it only, I think the first production was at Hartford Stage, I think it was Hartford Stage, in Connecticut somewhere, on 2017. It's never been done on the stage before. Wow. Or or if it has, it died an ignominious death somewhere in the uh, backlands of of England. It was never done in America. No, it was never done on the stage. So... There was, of course, the 1971 movie with an all-star cast. Right. And there was the more recent movie with um, Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Kenneth Kenneth Branagh. Oh, yeah, there was another one. There might have been a Peter Houston offer. That's right. Okay, that was the third one. And then there was the David, David Suchet. Suchet. Right. That was the BBC version. So it's been it's been filmed a number of times. Yes. But it hasn't been on stage. This is what I've heard. I right. haven't actually done the primary source research on this. <laughs> okay. So I've heard that it was the Christie estate that had asked Ken Ludwig to do a stage version of it. Yeah. Anyway, it just, it's, it, they, they said, well, let's take a look and see if this is going to work. And so he created a script, and they said, all right, let's, let's try it out in a regional theater. And it was fairly successful. Okay. And Paul, the set designer, saw it, and he thought it was awful. And, and you know, it, the reviews, and, and it's been done two other places already beside that one. And now there are like five productions or six productions in regional theater that are going to happen. Right. Uh, the Christie estate is very smart. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they thought, well, okay, Mousetrap is closed. We've got to get something else on yeah, there. Yeah, right. And this, this offers that. What I f- found in reading this is that there was not necessarily clearly apparent and jumping out in your face, but the opportunity of telling a deeper story, that the comedy kind of created a, a, a rhetorical strategy so that when things turned serious, it kind of caught you by surprise and caught you by the throat. Really? Yeah. 1928, uh, Agatha Christie just got through her brutal divorce with her husband, was invited by friends to go on a, an archaeological dig in Syria, I think it was, and they said, come on down on the Orient Express. And she got on and she said, whoa, this is kind of cool, and she filed that away. A few weeks later, the Orient Express got stuck for seven days in the mountains in a snowdrift. And she tucked that one away. That was in 28, 20. Then in 1932, the Lindbergh kidnapping. Uh, and she certainly filed that one away. And so there, she had three points to create a story with. Because this is based, without giving anything away, uh, what they call it the Armstrong baby as opposed to the Lindbergh yes, baby. Right. But it's based on the fact, and the very similar facts, that even though the, the wealthy family 
paid the ransom, and yes. it was quite a ransom. In the original one, it was $200,000, which is about $12 million in today's money. Wow. Uh, that the baby was found dead in the woods. Yeah. Uh, and of course it was devastating and Lucky Lindy became Unlucky Lindy and all that. Yeah. It was, it, and, it was, and it rippled around the world. So Christie used that as a kind of basis of, the, and that's the, one of the first things in the play, is a kind of in-the-dark voiceover of this baby being put to bed. Oh, you're kidding. Go to bed now. Who's mm-hmm. going to tuck you in? Nanny, yay. Mm-hmm. All that, and we hear a door open, and we hear, Ooh. no, no, who are you? It's all in the dark. And oh, finally really? The, yeah. And then her scream turns into a train whistle, and then all of a sudden on stage is, good evening, it's, I am Hercule Poirot. Oh my God! Oh, that's so clever. It is very clever, and he so he narrate. He's a kind of narrator at the beginning and the end. What I found interesting and a little um, unsatisfying in in everything I read is that the grief of the loss of a child in reality never goes away. No. And you kind of lose sight of that. It's reported, but it's not palpably there, yeah. the way that that kind of pain, those kinds of, of, of wounds are, you know, are there. So I've decided in my version of it, which is not necessarily in the script of mine, to keep the, that, that image and that presence refreshed and refreshed and refreshed. Wow. So, so that the, you know, it's, as I say, it's, it's balancing the, st- the, sh- the, the stick, stick and the stakes. <laughs> and we'll see how that works out. But, okay, uh, so now, earlier you said instead of 12 people, there are eight. Right. They've, he combined, he, he got rid of two and combined two others into, uh, into the characters that exist. So, in, for example, instead of there being a countess and a doctor, there's a countess who is a is a doctor. Uh, instead of there being the Swedish girl who you know, oh, takes yes, to yes, Africa yes, babies yes. and all that, right. and then there was Fräulein Schulz who took care of the princess. Uh, yes, yes. She's combined, uh. and the uh, conductor says, so where is Fräulein Schulz? Oh, Fräulein Schulz has had a medical thing. You know, she had a, a cardiac incident, but she's German, so it's not going to do anything. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so instead, I'm, bring, I'm bringing along Greta Olsen. Yeah, right. Who works for little babies. Yes. There's no humor in the movies. Very little. Yeah. Practically I mean, none. I mean, really, I can't imagine there's anybody who hasn't seen this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine that we would have to be worrying about giving away anything because, I mean, who could not have... Well, you know something, what's very interesting to me about Christie. Yeah. I mean, I directed The Mousetrap ah. uh, over at Mold Stupider, and... People came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I saw this in London two years ago. I was still shocked when we discovered who Ah, ah, There's something about the way that that it's being told that diverts your attention in a way so when when the aha moment, it's still a shock. Yes, I'm sure that's true. Because God knows. And I was just thinking when I said it, you know, I'm a very big Christy fan. I think I've read everything. Yeah. And I see every one of the movies when they come out, and I don't yeah. care. Yeah. Because it's so wonderful. Yeah. You know, to that, spend time with those characters. Yes, exactly. And exactly. that wit. Yes, yes. And it's so smart. Mm-hmm. Jesus. And you know what she also always does. I mean, her, this is the this is the formula that um, 
which she used very often. She gathers a group of people together, yeah. isolates them. Right. There's a murder. Everyone is equally suspect and equally innocent until, you know, some strange person, either it's Hercule Poirot or the brown mouse, Miss Marple, comes in. Yeah. And some unassuming, un- unlikely person comes in and solves it. And when they do solve it, uh, when they find when we find out who did it, um, that resonates in the culture in a kind of way. In other words, it's not simply about aha, he's guilty, but it's about he's guilty because the world has gone nuts, nuts or he's right, right. guilty because of mistreatment of children, or he's guilty, or she's guilty because of the you know the the law is an ass. Right, right, you know, right, right, There's right, something right. where where, right. where we find out. Yes, right. And, but that that happens at the last minute. Right. So the discovery of who done it is a refresher course on where we are in the culture. Yes, on morals, on honor, on mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Also that. Yeah. And also at the same time, it's a surprise and it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Which is the genius of. Agatha Christie. Absolutely. You know. Okay, so where is your cast from? <gasps> All over. I'm working with a number of new people which I'm, that I'm very excited about. Uh, as you know, it's casting for the rep season, so I'm sharing actors with other productions. Ah, yes, right. So, for example, we're doing The Great Leap, which requires an Asian actress uh-huh. uh, and a, 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 a tall Jewish uh, angry fifty-year-old uh, um, ex-basketball coach. So you have to have an Asian and a basketball coach. And a ba- ah. I, I mean, I mean, it, yes. Yeah, and it. we're doing Into the Breaches, which requires an African-American costumier, um, <laughs> so that our our um, countess, you know, Elena Andreni, is as African-American. Yeah. And and she's you know. Perfect and beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. And our, you know, little English um, uh, Rose, who's supposed to be the governess, right. is Asian. Yeah. So uh, what's wonderful about this is that it's also blind. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. in addition to the fact that you had to do it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's well, it's wonderful actually. Yeah, and it's something that we, we, you know, as soon as you see them, you go, oh, okay, oh, cool. fine, right. good, yeah, right. And as long as the the countess can charm the pants off of all the men in the room. Yeah. Which she does. Yeah. We're good. Yeah, right, right. And, and also our, our little, as long as our little English, you know, uh, governess um, looks like a fragile lily and has nerves of steel yeah. and has a perfect <laughs> RP, we're good. Yeah. Oh, and we've got four or five of the MFA three students in very good roles. They're they're fabulous actors, but the Poirot I'm most excited. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I've watched this man act uh, since I was working up at American Players Theater probably 14 years ago. One of the best greatest actors I've ever seen on oh stage my God. anywhere. And, you know, I, he, when I saw him on stage doing Iago, a number of different roles, it was like, my God, he's huge. And this is in a, in a large outdoor theater. I come up to him, he's five foot three. He's, he's, yeah. oh, he's, small, he's short and short-waisted and all that. But so magnetic, such, an, such a consummate actor, I said, that there's my Poirot. In this case, I didn't go through channels. I picked up the phone and called him. I said, would you be interested? And he said, you know, I think I might be able to do this. So to have um, Jim DeVita here at the Oslo, this is a powerhouse, this guy. So I'm very excited about him. And I've got some of my usual favorites. I've got Peggy Roder. And I have David Breitbarth and Matt DeCaro playing Ratchet. Do you know how long it runs? Not that long, and it's selling out. It's got more... Tickets sold at this point than any other 
show in the history of the of the rep theater. People are, are flocking to it. This Every, doesn't surprise me. No, it's these murder mysteries. You know, um, when I did the Mousetrap at the mall, mm. it was totally sold out. And you just continue to have this career. You just continue to work, right? Energizer Bunny. What? Energizer, An energizer Bunny, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, with this perspective, looking back at your whole career, because you have been doing this all of your life, mm -hmm. is there anything that you would say about what it feels like to have done this with your life? What you think about it? The only thing I can say is, uh, well, you know, Theater is ephemeral. It evaporates after ah. people go away. So there, you know, is it going to be lasting like a painting, or you know, or a, a, a building, or a monument, or, or a novel, or something? No, it's not. I mean, it does stay in in people's memories for a while, but then it disappears. It evanesces. A production just doesn't last. And there's something about that that's a little bittersweet. But when I think about what I'm doing from show to show to show and that everyone is a new adventure mm -hmm. and everyone is an opportunity to tell a story that has not been told that way before yeah. and that these stories are either vastly amusing or desperately necessary. Yeah. I find that the combination of the happiness I get in the room with these actors, whether it's the rehearsal room or in tech or in previews, or, you know, bringing it to the stage and bringing it to people still gives me such deep satisfaction. Um, I, and you know, I have, a, you know, the thing about it, it is, it is evanescent and so is my memory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't remember the shows I did last year, you know, practically. I'm always looking toward the next one. I'm a happy camper. And that's the perfect place to stop. Thank you so much. Oh, sure.